Michael Ashcroft, the founder of Lord Ashcroft Polls, and this is the Ashcroft in America podcast. Now that the dust has settled on the most dramatic elections in recent history, I've come to Washington, D.C. to reflect on the result and think about what we can expect under President Donald Trump. I'll ask three of Washington's best-known political reporters, Dan Baltz of the Washington Post, Molly Ball of The Atlantic, and Anna Palmer of Politico, about what the transition tells us about how Trump plans to govern. Then, two senior strategists, Jeff Larson, the Republican overseeing plans for the inauguration, and Stephanie Cutter, who was Deputy Campaign Manager for President Obama, They'll tell us how they see the future for their respective parties in this new and uncharted political landscape. And to talk about the election and what the future holds, we have three very distinguished journalists. Molly Ball, who covers politics for The Atlantic, Dan Bolz, chief correspondent of The Washington Post, and Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent for Politico. Thank you all very much uh, for joining me. And first of all, what do you each make of how Donald Trump has handled the transition so far? And what does it tell us about the way that he intends to govern? Who would like to go first? I think it's, this is Molly, I think it's entirely of a piece with his campaign and his entire business career. I think if you've been watching Trump carefully from the beginning, the only surprise to me is the constant expectation by some people that he's suddenly going to change. He has always been someone who feels that the best, who's, who's fixated on power and maintaining power and, 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 and being in control, who reveres and perhaps fetishizes strength in, in himself and in others, uh, who manages by creating uh, competing power centers beneath him and power struggles for his approval, making people jockey for his approval, and, and compete with each other, often publicly, uh, conducting decision-making in the open, floating names publicly and seeing how they're received and watching a lot of television to figure out what he thinks about things. So all of these decision-making processes, which are shocking to people because they're highly unorthodox for a president-elect, are nonetheless completely consistent with the Donald Trump that, we, that I have been following for the past year and a half. I would say two things. I agree with everything you said, but I also think two things that are happening. One, I think his kind of concept of draining the swamp is something that we haven't seen him do at all. I think he's, for the most part, picked very establishment players and people that are at least well-known characters, even if they're not maybe in the mainstream of Republican politics. And I also think what you're really seeing, at least at the cabinet level, um, picks is a lot of CEOs and business people, people that he's comfortable with, people that have, I mean, the, I mean, the billionaire's cabinet, right? And so you have people who either perceives to have a lot of power or perceives to be great deal makers, um, but are certainly kind of within the, the norm of, you know, kind of American politics. Um, I agree with both of you on a lot of that. I, I, I think that um, we should assume that this will be an unconventional presidency from now till the end of it, um, that he does business in odd ways if you think about the way presidents do business conventionally. Um, but because we all tried to put a conventional frame around the election of 2016, 
we were often misled by the judgments we were drawing or the conclusions we were drawing about how the campaign might unfold. Um, I think at this point you can't predict whether he's going to be a success or a failure. I think that the people he's brought in, I mean, to your point about draining the swamp, this is not certainly draining the swamp in the idea of, you know, we're not going to have big business here or a lot of lobbyists hanging around somewhere. Um, but it may be draining the swamp in a way that's different or that, that, that Donald Trump is really going to be able to do or try to do, which is simply to, to conduct business in a different way. It seems like almost everybody who's been brought in so far to be in this, in this administration is somebody who in one way or another is either hostile to or opposed or skeptical of the agency or the responsibility that they will have to deal with. And how they proceed to manage that with those kinds of perspectives, I think, is going to be the real interesting unfolding of the Trump administration. I mean, following on from that, I mean, one notable thing is that he continues to tweet, whether about his cabinet pick or, or things like China, where he wants to get a point across. Do you think he'll keep tweeting from the White House or will his staff wrestle the iPhone from his grasp? They certainly haven't been successful so far. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he'll keep doing it. I think the other thing that I feel I've learned about Donald Trump's personality is that when things go his way, he takes that as vindication of his methods. So the fact that he won the election while conducting himself in a way that, you know, commentators every single day were saying was horribly undisciplined, he thinks that that critique is not worth anything because, look, he won. And he thinks that this is part of his appeal to the people he support, who support him. So I think we can expect him to, he, he, he loves to provoke people. In a way, I, I think he's, he's the world's number one internet troll. And uh, he's very, very good at it. Uh, and, and I think he loves to see, he loves the way his tweets can, you know, cause everybody's heads to fall off on cable television for a day at a time. Uh, and some have speculated that he does this somewhat deliberately, that when there's a story he'd prefer cable news not be talking about, he'll tweet something outrageous that has no particular policy implications or, 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 or grounding in, in, in real world implications, but it makes everybody's head explode and they stop talking about the other thing. I think this is Trump's version of the bully pulpit. Um, when, when he did the interview with 60 Minutes right after the election and was asked about this question, will you keep tweeting, and responded, it's a, you know, it is a modern form of communication. I mean, I think for him it is a way to stay in touch with people who are his supporters or not, but to convey the kind of the, the distilled essence of Donald Trump by doing that directly rather than some of the traditional ways we think presidents communicate. It's very Reagan-esque in somewhat where he would kind of take to trying to get popular opinion on his side when maybe establishment figures in Congress or in the administration didn't agree with them. I think he feels like, you know, it's a way for him to communicate directly and keeps his followers supportive of him. And I think there's no question it's him, right? I mean, I think every single other politician, except maybe Chuck Grassley. You mean because he can't spell? <laughs> that yeah, and his grammar is off, and is and he has these certain verbal tics. You can just it's you can tell it's really him talking unlike 90% of other politicians who so you know it went through five staffers. Well, I, I mean, Donald had um, a few million Twitter followers. It's not as if he's new to Twitter it's from his days of The Apprentice. It's now up to just over 17 million. And I've actually wages a bet that in 12 months it'll be over 50 million. And that, of course, would be a massive way to communicate. But I would add that even at 50 million, it's still not as many as Justin Bieber. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but I believe he has more, to your point, I believe he already has more followers than the official president of the United States Twitter account. Yep. Anyway, be honest, guys. When did you first think that Trump was going to win? And why did you think so many commentators were taken by surprise as a result? Election night. Uh, election night. I think early, like a, like seven or eight o'clock on election night, when Florida was not, they were taking so long to count, and you just kept on seeing in Pennsylvania and other places the totals weren't going where she needed them to go. Now, I, I don't make predictions as a matter of policy, so I never, you know, came out and said, you know, Hillary Clinton is going to win, take it to the bank. I think I don't think that's something reporters should do. Uh, but I did, according to all of the evidence that was in front of me, it appeared that she was going to win. Well, yeah, I, agree. I mean, I, I, I totally agree with that, and also on the point about reporters ought not to be predicting. Um, and I think that almost everybody in Trump world probably realized on election night that he was going to win and not before that. There are some Trump people who now say we right. knew four or five days in advance, but there's no hard evidence that Donald Trump thought that. Or Kellyanne Conway. And the, the RNC certainly didn't. They were giving off-the-record briefings two days before about how they were going to lose, that it wasn't their fault. Donald Trump himself recently said that he walked into election night believing he was about to lose. And I, too, had, had sources in Trump world who, go, who, before the results came in, were predicting that they were going to lose. So everyone was surprised. <laughs> well, now, as a consequence of that, America has one-party government. How do you see the relationship between the White House and Capitol Hill playing out? Do you think that they will work well together, and if they don't, who do you think the voters will blame? I do not think America has one-party government. I think Donald Trump is a party of one, and the Republican Party is something different. And so far, he has been empowering a lot of traditional Republican actors, but when the rubber meets the road in terms of policymaking, I will be very interested to see whether the Trump party philosophy, which is the sort of Breitbart philosophy, the Steve Bannon philosophy, the nationalist populist philosophy, whether that prevails or whether the Paul Ryan philosophy prevails. There are, we've already seen several points at which they're directly at odds. You have Trump and Bannon talking about wanting to spend a lot of money building things, doing a trillion-dollar infrastructure plan. Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell are not interested in that. Trump has, since being elected, so he has not dropped his desire to see massive tariffs. Uh, the Republican leaders in Congress are not interested in that. So I don't think it's clear that there's going to be agreement on policy beyond repealing Obamacare, which, which everyone wants to do. And the, and the question of who the voters will blame, um, I think that's an unpredictable question right now. I think that Donald Trump has followers who will stay with him uh, for a long time. I mean, I think, he has, I think he has leeway to actually change his mind on some of these issues if he wants to. Um, but there's nothing about what he's done as a candidate to suggest that He's going to go back on some of the basics of what he talked about, trade, you know, build the wall in some way or another, but deal with, you know, deal with immigration in a very tough way. Um, and, and, you know, the Republicans have, have gathered around him um, pretty strongly in the wake of the election, but that's to be expected, uh, but not necessarily likely to last indefinitely. It'll be interesting to see how those tensions uh, 
uh, start to play out. There's never been as much interest in an American election in Britain <laughs> uh, as there is through this one, through all the obvious reasons. But moving to the other side of the fence, what lessons do you think the Democrats have learned from the result and how quickly will they be able to put themselves back together again? I think they're having an existential crisis. I mean, I think, one, they're in a bad place because they don't have a leader with Obama leaving, so they don't have anybody who's going to take the mantle who can go up against Donald Trump at this point anyway. And I think they are really struggling to figure out how to reach the Rust Belt America. I mean, I've talked to so many Democratic lawmakers in the last couple of weeks about the frustration within their own caucus. I mean, they're fighting each other. I think in the Dem caucus in the House, probably tension has never been higher since, like, 2006. So... I think it takes them a long time. They're trying to figure out what the message is and how, how they lost, basically, the you know white traditional working class voter. Yeah, they haven't learned anything yet. And there's a pitch battle underway for what the lessons will be because everybody's got a stake in it. I mean, like my colleagues, I've been covering the Republican Civil War for the past six years, and a lot of those people are suddenly friends now because winning solves a lot of problems. You know, the, there were a lot of fissures in the Democratic Party that didn't really matter as long as they kept winning presidential elections. But they ignored the rest of the elections for the most part. So now they are disempowered at all levels. Uh, and there are philosophical differences, both about what the party ought to stand for and about political strategy, how they can start winning again. And the first stage is always denial. So much of the conversation still is about uh, not wanting to believe that the election really turned out this way. It's about recounts. It's about hacking. It's about... Uh, the popular vote and that therefore Donald Trump's victory doesn't count. A lot of what I'm hearing from from particularly Democratic-based partisans, not the not the leaders so much, is just a sense of denial. They this this is a problem that they've gone through before. I mean, if if you look at what happened after 1984, when they got shellacked for a second time by Ronald Reagan, um, there was a similar kind of crisis moment about what they do and, and focused in, in many ways on the same constituency. How, how have we so badly lost the white vote and particularly the white male vote? It's now more focused on white working class, but, but nonetheless, it's a similar kind of thing. That led to a four-year, six-year battle within the Democratic Party about which direction do you go? Do you, you, know, do you kind of double down on you know, old-fashioned liberalism or do you go ultimately the way Bill Clinton went in 1992, which was as New Democrats? Uh, they're not even close to that point in having that kind of discussion or figuring out who's going to speak for one side or the other. Right now, the push is to go farther to the left uh, and try to you know, take that message to people. Shortly after the election, I wrote a piece arguing that many Trump voters had effectively voted for hope and change and concluded with tongue-in-cheek the suggestion that this made Donald Trump the new Barack Obama. And do you think there is a danger that Trump has raised expectations beyond what he can realistically deliver? And if his supporters turn out to be disappointed, what happens next? You know, it's interesting... I do think people voted for change, but I don't know if it was out of hope so much as desperation. What I heard, and you certainly spoke to at least as many voters as I did uh, in all of your focus groups, but what I heard from so many voters either in Trump country or at Trump events uh, was, it was not a sense of hope. It was, it was anger and fear. Uh, 
But at the same time, you know, I've been to one of the thank you rallies that Trump has been throwing, trying to figure out why someone would go to a campaign rally after the election and (laughs) what it is that he's trying to do with these events, which I think is deeper than just something that he likes to do, although that's a part of it. Um, But what I found from the people there is that expectations in terms of policy don't even really matter. They feel emotionally gratified just by the fact that he won. The whole point of the Trump movement was to assert the voice of a class of people who felt they didn't have a voice. And having elected him, that is accomplished. It's almost as if he doesn't have to do anything or they'll forgive him anything. They'll forgive him not building the wall. They'll forgive him not bringing jobs back in a material way because first he can lie and say he brought jobs back, which is one of the things he's been doing already. Um, And they'll believe him. And, and, and there's a sense of, someone told me that on election night when Trump won, he, he, it was like being reborn. And so I wonder if he has to deliver anything or if just being in office is enough for some of these people. Molly and I were both at a conference at the University of Wisconsin uh, recently. And one of the presenters is a woman named Kathy Kramer, who is a professor there, who has written a book called The Politics of Resentment. And it's based on many years of talking to people in small town and rural Wisconsin. Uh, and their grievances and their dissatisfactions. And she went back to some of the places, a couple of the places since the election to ask people what they expect. And their expectations were, in her mind, heartbreakingly low, as she put it, uh, that they did not think that Donald Trump was going to do that much for their own lives, that they, they still feel a certain disaffection. And yet, as Molly says, they, they have faith that their voice was in one way or another heard by Donald Trump and therefore expressed in the election. Yeah, I agree with both of you. I think also that Republicans, especially on the activist level, feel like they've been disappointed by uh, establishment Republican lawmakers for a very, very long time. So if he does one of the 20 things that he said he was going to do, they will feel like there is victory in that. Well, that's a fascinating response to, uh, uh, to that one. But how do you think, let's move on to foreign. How do you think President Trump's foreign policy is going to differ from what we've seen in recent years. For example, do you think he'd be more prepared to intervene militarily in situations like uh, Syria? That's a fascinating question. I have no idea. Well, so we already know it's very, very different just in terms of his approach to diplomacy or lack thereof, right? Uh, Some of these these phone calls and uh, broaches of pre-existing protocols when it comes to our allies. And it may be that that actually will set off some chains of events that he can't control, or it may be that everybody just sort of absorbs that this is the new normal because he's different. Uh, he's stocked the cabinet with a bunch of generals, uh, a lot of whom believe that the past administration was insufficiently aggressive militarily, but he's also said a lot of things about in the campaign about not wanting to overexert uh, U.S. the U.S. military, and he's talked about uh, curtailing military spending on things like fighter jets, not to mention Air Force One. <laughs> so there's a lot of mixed, mixed signals there. You know, whoa, his the way he desc- he's always described his foreign policy as an America first foreign policy is a foreign policy that is much more transactional than idealistic. Um, but what that means in terms of individual decisions, individual conflicts, I have no idea. I, I, picking up on Molly's point. I think you could look at the way Trump conducted himself during the election and and describe him as a muscular non-interventionist, which is somebody who talked very tough, um, you know, 
everything you said about ISIS. And yet, when push came to shove in debates or interviews or anything else, he was he was not willing to go as far as some of his Republican opponents were in terms of committing uh, U.S. military forces. Um, I, I think it's an area where uh, he does not have any experience uh, pr- or probably a deep knowledge, and the generals around him are going to be educating him. And the question is what he really takes away from what they say. We already know that he's he's softened on waterboarding on the basis of a conversation with his Secretary of Defense designee, uh, and we'll see where else he begins to change. Yeah, I don't think he gave a lot of specifics, right? That was his big thing. He wanted to have the secret plan. He wasn't going to let you know, the, our enemies know what he, he was thinking. And so I think that worked on the campaign very well. It will be interesting to see when he puts a little bit more meat on the bones, like what it, what is actually he's willing to do. I think there are two aspects of his personality uh, that are very strong and that are sort of in competition here. He really likes to win, but he really doesn't like to spend money. So I don't know what that, where that leaves us. <laughs> I mean, just, just moving, uh, t- picking up that point, Molly, uh, which comes down to temperament. And in our research before the election, we heard people say time and time again that one big reservation they had about Donald Trump was uh, that temperament conducting uh, America's international uh, relations. Do you think that fear will prove to be well-founded? Well, it already has. He's making phone calls to Taiwan. I mean, this is the kind of thing that, you know, the entire establishment of both parties waves its hands and stamps its feet and says, you can't do that. That's not how things are done. And his whole point is he's never cared about that. Or what he's doing with the CIA and basically saying what their findings are are incorrect, even though all Republicans and most career people say, you know, they did find that there's hacking, that Russia was behind it. And he just, you know, doesn't believe in the facts is you know, they're laid out. He kind of creates his own facts or his own narrative. Well, I think what we don't know yet is is whether he has policies for different parts of the world or whether he is he reacts uh, in a way to create provocations to test and see how things, you know, how, how other countries or uh, other people respond to him. Um, certainly that was part of what was about the phone call with the Taiwan president. Um we don't, and the Chinese obviously reacted, and now we are waiting to see whether that means anything for Donald Trump in the way he approaches China. So I think in, in a lot of these areas, um, you know, he's, he's visceral. He responds. He reacts. Uh, and as Molly said earlier, I mean, he, he watches TV. I mean, he, he, he gets his information in, in ways that traditional presidents have not. And so he's unpredictable in that way. Uh, and not necessarily in consistent ways. And for, you know, finally, in the last few months, we've heard plenty of reasons to be pessimistic about a Trump presidency. Would you each like to give me a, one reason to be optimistic? I think if you look at the way he has put together his cabinet, uh, and a lot of people have criticized it as being a kind of a modern-day version of you know of The Apprentice or something like that. Um, He's, he's talked to a lot of people. He's absorbed a lot of information. Uh, a lot of the people that he's bringing in are, are quite high caliber. Um, people could disagree with their philosophies. Um, but when you look at them, these are people of measurable success. Um, and it, it may suggest that he's, he's going to run an administration 
given everything else we've said, that nonetheless surprises people uh, in positive ways. But who knows? I think picking up on what Molly said earlier about kind of the Trump is his own political party, uh, I think he's going to cut deals. And I think we've been in a Washington that is gridlocked. And so you're going to see on some of these big things that he's less interested in the details of getting whatever an infrastructure or package or whatever the health care reform looks like, but that he's willing to let Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan do a lot of the heavy lifting. But I think in two seconds he'd go to Chuck Schumer to cut the deal and make it make, make something pass. So I think you could actually see potentially some things move forward when we've been in a very kind of stagnant mode, particularly in Congress. Molly. Yeah, I'd say optimism, pessimism is a value judgment I don't necessarily want to make. But uh, just, I mean, a lot of people are pleasantly surprised that we don't have a nuclear war, for example. Yet. (laughs) (laughs) But... um, but I think Anna's point a is a good bar, one. That, that's what I'm saying, is the bar is so low among so many of Trump's critics that they will be pleasantly surprised if, you know, the things just continue to, to, to function, I think. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, and I, I think the point about ending gridlock is, is potentially strong. He talked a lot about that on the campaign trail. I heard it from a lot of his supporters that they were frustrated uh, with, just Washington not working. And, and you know, he's certainly showing he's willing to think outside the box. You know, the, the fear that I hear from a lot of my, my anti-Trump sources in both the Democrat and Republican establishments, um, they fear that he will succeed. They fear that he will get things done and that his style, uh, while unorthodox and while maybe having bad consequences in all kinds of ways, uh, will be effective in some way that is that is discrediting to the old establishments of both parties. So, you know, foreign leaders, while initially shocked by his breaches of diplomatic protocol, will realize that the only way to deal with him is to give him things to placate him. And so we'll get all these things and Trump will say we're winning. Well, on that note, I don't think we can better it. But I would like to really... Uh, uh, thank Molly Ball and Dan Boltz and uh, Anna Palmer for joining me for this Ashcroft in America uh, podcast. I'm now joined by Stephanie Cutter, a renowned Democrat consultant who served as deputy campaign manager for President Obama in the 2012 election. And thanks, Stephanie, for taking the time uh, to speak to me. And in the weeks leading up to the election, I spoke to several prominent Democrats, and without exception, they were confident that Hillary Clinton was going to be president. Was there much doubt about the outcome in Democratic circles, or did election night come as a real shock? Well, I can tell you, for me, (laughs) it came as a real shock. Um, You know, I I generally uh, tend to be a pessimist in most elections, and uh, and I and I think that's the key to success. Never think you're going to win, uh, because and then it takes a little bit of your edge off. In this election, I thought we were going to win, uh, and I was pretty confident about it. And I couldn't have been more wrong. And I'll tell you, on election night, I was doing my normal uh, media gambit, and uh, I never felt so out of touch with the electorate as I did that night. But why do you think so many commentators and others were, in fact? Uh, taken by surprise? Well, I think it's important to remember that this election really came down to a very small margin. You know, of course, it was more than 2.8 million 
uh, voters in the popular vote, which is an enormous uh, delta between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Um, but in terms of the electoral vote, it came down to about 100,000 votes, which is nothing, <laughs> except if you're losing. Uh, and uh, if you're losing by, if you lost by 100,000 votes, then there are probably a million mothers and fathers of that loss. There's not one reason. Uh, but for sure, there's some, there was something wrong with the public polling and there was something wrong with the data analytics that was going on because everybody forecasted a you know, two to seven point victory on that night, well into election night and really until the exits were coming in. And you know, we were all watching the network uh, 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 returns. Did we see the, the big danger signs coming from certain pockets in the country, which, you know, the, you add that up and it, it, it gives you that 30,000 loss in Michigan or, uh, you know, I think it's down to 10,000 in Pennsylvania. And, you know, we, we work on an electoral vote system and, uh, you know, you lose Pennsylvania from, for, with 10,000 votes, that's an enormous uh bulk of electoral votes that you're losing makes it much more difficult to have a pathway to 270. It was often said before the election that despite the mood for change, the electoral map worked against Trump and the Republicans. And in the event, it was the other way around. Do you think the map has effectively been redrawn and that the Republicans will entrench their position in places like Michigan and Wisconsin? Or do you think everything is up for grabs again in four years' time? I think that the electoral map, if you look at the demographics of that map, um, it, it leans towards Democrats. Um, and what happened in 2016 is that demographics weren't destiny. Um, certain groups of people stayed home, didn't vote. Uh, certain groups of people turned out at a higher rate than anybody expected. How does that play in 20, uh, what will it be 2020? Um, uh, no one really knows, but this election was so candidate specific. You had two, you know, mega personalities on either side uh, of the ballot that it's very difficult to make any long term assumptions um, of what life will be like in 2020. But what we do know is, uh, at least for Democrats, we have to be stop being so um, complacent in our efforts to continue to reach. You know, there's no reason. Many of those voters in Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania should have voted for Trump. If you look at his policies or what he's actually going to bring to the table for them, they're going to end up paying a big price, whether it's on health care or jobs or taxes. Uh, th those people are not protected, yet they still voted against their own personal interests because of their desire for change. Well, let's see what happens over the next couple of years in terms of what kind of change he does bring for their day-to-day -day, uh, well-being. Um, and it's... it's and, it's on Democrats to be able to communicate uh, their agenda, our agenda, of what we will make a difference in their lives versus what Trump is, is doing to them. So, um, you know, the, the big takeaways on this, I think we might have gotten a little too complacent in our ability to communicate to union households and uh, middle class households and lower middle class households. Um, and we need to regroup on that and do a better job. It's always tempting for losing parties to claim a moral victory rather than face up to how they need to change to win back the votes that they need. 
Uh, what do you think the traps are for the Democrats on that front, and how much faith do you have that the party will avoid them? Well, I think that um, you know the Clinton campaign certainly has communicated that uh, one of the biggest factors in their loss was FBI Director Comey coming out um, uh, with his letter two weeks before the election and then following up days before the election saying that there was no evidence of wrongdoing. So it was really a double whammy against the campaign. You're doing something wrong, but wait, maybe you're not doing something wrong, but we're going to remind people that you could possibly be doing something wrong. So it had an impact, but it had an impact, I think, because the environment, the, the play had already been written. Uh, before that letter came out, the conditions were set. Uh, I think as Democrats as a whole, we could have done a better job uh, understanding what people were feeling in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, pockets of Florida. Uh, You know, it's no different than there are very similar demographics in Maine and New Hampshire. Um, And, you know, if we were doing so poorly in Iowa, what makes you think that we were going to win Wisconsin? Um, or if we were in trouble in Ohio, what makes you think that we would win Michigan? Um, so uh, I think there were signs that we could have seen uh, earlier. That being said, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, when you lose, uh, there, uh, especially by 100,000 votes, there, are, there is not one reason. There is a compilation of things that happen, some of which are in your control, some of which are not in your control. But finally, um, given the fate of most political predictions over the last couple of years, a completely unreasonable question to finish on, if I may. Who do you see as the most likely Democrat contender to take on Donald Trump in 2020? Well, you know, I, I believe uh, that, you know, where we are today uh, will look very different to where we are a year from now. And that's politics, as you know. Uh, you know, three months in politics is a lifetime. A year is uh, a millennial. So um, uh, I, I hesitate to predict, but there are a lot of uh, new faces out there um, that, uh, you know, we'll see what happens over the next couple of years. But certainly, you know, Kristen Gillibrand from New York, Amy Klobuchar, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren's name is often mentioned. Um, you know, those are three women <laughs> who could be taking uh, the mantle for the Democratic Party. Lots of others. Uh, Tim Kaine, who uh, ran as vice president uh, with Hillary Clinton, is an enormously well-respected senator on both sides of the aisle um, and very popular in the Democratic Party and, and knows how to talk to um, uh, to voters in exurban areas outside of cities um, who are that lower uh, or middle-class voter who is skeptical of trade and uh, maybe has been left out of the, uh, of the economic recovery. So, you know, there are lots of possibilities, but I will say that what we think will be the outcome today uh, in four years is definitely don't bet your house on that. Jeff Larson was a senior figure at the Republican National Committee and a close advisor to Reince Priebus, now Donald Trump's chief of staff. At the moment, he's assisting in the preparations for the inauguration of the new president in uh, January.
Uh, Jeff, the preparation for this inauguration is quite something, far more than us Brits would uh, ever do. But tell us about what's involved in planning a presidential inauguration. Well, it really is a celebration of the peaceful transition of power that, that you know that you know ratified. It is part of the American system, and, and so it is this peaceful transition. And so there's there's lots of things that have, that are just really traditional. You will have the swearing-in ceremony that will take place, you know, on the Capitol steps. There'll be a parade that will go down Pennsylvania Avenue, um, and then there'll be um, you know inaugural balls, and there'll be a number of other events that that happen. But um, on January twentieth, um, you know, Donald Trump will assume the presidency, and and um, and, and uh, you know uh, President Obama will um, will you know go fly off or leave somehow. But uh, but it, it's just it's a celebration of the peaceful transition of power that we have. When Donald Trump first entered the race, what did you think he thought his chances were of becoming president? or even winning the nomination. And do you think he really expected to be in the position he is today? You know, I don't, I've, I don't underestimate Donald Trump, and, and I believe that, that he, he didn't get into this to take second place or to get third place. I mean, I think he got into this race thinking he could win. And I think that uh, he had, he had a, a, a you know, pulse of the, of the American people that I think a lot of other people didn't. And so I, I do think that he had a sense that... Um, that I can be president of the United States, and I'm going to I'm going to jump into this, and and, and I'm going to do it. The president-elect has set himself the task of uh, his slogan of making America great again, which is both a big job and a difficult one to actually define. How do you think um, Donald Trump's voters are going to judge him in four years' time, and what do you think are the most difficult expectations that he's going to have to meet? I think that I think that the, the voters will judge him. Um, I think that on on the progress that we've made as a country and, and their own livelihoods. I think that there's a lot of people that that are that are um, hurting in America. There's a lot of people that uh, that haven't been getting ahead, and it's the, you know the middle class, you know has has um, has has been stalled for a number of years. And I think that um, they're looking for an opportunity to uh, you know to to move up. And 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 I think that that's how this will be measured. I think that. Um, you know, I think expectations is going to be the hardest thing you know to manage. That it's not going to happen overnight. It takes it takes time, um, and and I think that. Uh, but I do think that the policies and, and what he's going to put in place will move America forward. Will make America great again. And, and I think that it's. Um, I think it's it's a real opportunity for uh, for people to uh, you know to really succeed. I mean, you know, Jeff, it's no secret that not everyone in the upper ranks of the Republican Party wanted uh, to see Donald Trump as their nominee. And do you think those relationships will be quickly healed or are things going to continue to be fractious over the coming years? No, I think you've seen that already. I mean, you know, you've seen people that, uh, you know, such as, you know, as Mitt Romney and Ted Cruz, you know, have, have visited uh, with with President-elect Trump. Um, you know, they have had, you know, worthwhile conversations. The President-elect has, has, has listened and I think, you know, and they've provided um, some advice, but he has a very conciliatory personality. I think you're seeing that, um, you know, all through these cabinet selections and, and what he's done is, and, but he's also talking to a lot of people that um, that weren't necessarily with him and, and supporters. I mean, what do you see as the potential flashpoints between the new administration and Congress? How forgiving will the voters be if they continue to see uh, deadlock and political games? I think I think that it won't necessarily be as much deadlock. Is that sometimes I think that uh, you know the president elect is is you know is a is a business leader and he's got a cabinet that are business leaders and for the most part are their you know their generals and and they're they're people they're they're, they're real personalities and people who have been very very successful in their own careers and their own lives and um, 
And sometimes I feel like Congress moves too slowly. It's not that there's gridlock, but it just, you know, the, the speed at which you say, as the president-elect, I want to do this, and the speed at which Congress then actually implements that are uh, sometimes do two different things. And I think that, um, you know, the president-elect, I think when, when he says, I want to do something, you know, it, it gets done fairly quickly. And, and so I think that uh, that will be something I think we'll have to watch and see how it plays out. And, and following on from that, I mean, do you think the Trump presidency is going to be more orthodox than uh, people expect or more radical? I think it's going to be more orthodox than what people expect. And I think, again, you can already see that in some of his cabinet choices. I mean, he, he, is, he is, you know, I think that there was a fear that he was going to go, you know, choose people that, um, you know, that weren't necessarily the most qualified. And I think what you're finding is that these are the, probably the most qualified people in the entire country to lead these agencies. They're, they're, they're sacrificing their own careers and, and what, they're, what they've been doing in order to serve their, their country. And I think that, you know, they're, they're stepping away from businesses, they're stepping away from, from other careers to come into government and, um, and and really serve this president and um, and in their country, and so I think it's it's uh, it's with that dedication I think that, um, that that he has chosen people that um, that will be very very successful, and I think they'll be much more orthodox than um, than what people I think thought um, you know on Wednesday morning after the election. That's all for this special edition of the Ashcroft in America podcast. We'll be back next year to find out what the voters have to say about their new president as the Trump era unfolds. Thanks for listening.